Good morning, folks, and welcome back. This is Mark Steiner right here on The Mark Steiner Show on your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA, 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. Now, folks, good to have you with us here today. We're looking forward to your thoughts, questions, and ideas here at 410-319-8888. You can uh, tweet us at Mark Steiner or send an email to talk at steinershow.org. As you know, for the last 24 years on this program, we've been covering the issue of bail reform uh, in a very serious way. Uh, and um, oh, in this last legislative, last, pardon me, this last legislative session, there was a huge battle, as it has been in our state legislators, uh, legislature around bail reform. So, Brian Frosch, our Attorney General, ruled that uh, the way we do bail reform, and we'll talk about the details of that in a moment, were unconstitutional. The courts decided to do it in a different way here in Maryland. Then there was a battle inside the state legislature to undo what the court wanted to do uh, on the part of bail bondsmen. And there were battling bills uh, in the Senate and in the House of Delegates. The Senate then sent a, sent a, bill, a bill to the legislature, to the House of Delegates, uh, that was basically a bill written uh, by and for the bail bonds industry. Uh, that bill was uh, defeated in a very interesting political way when... Uh, Speaker of the House, Michael Bush, refused to let it come out of committee, uh, which effectively killed it, which means that the court ruling stood. And so we're going to cover what that means and also some of the history of this battle. Uh, one of the people who, uh, well, the person who really was uh, the person who led this battle in the state for a long time, uh, often a lone voice in the wilderness, was Doug Colbert, is Doug Colbert. He's not a was, he's still with us. He's professor of law at the University of Maryland Carey School of Law. Uh, he and his students and others have been fighting to end cash bail in Maryland for a long time. And we'll talk a bit about what that history has meant. There was a point uh, in this struggle, which we'll get to as well, talk about uh, around bail reform that they formed a commission that actually recommended the end of cash bail in Maryland that was improperly ignored by the president of the Senate and others and threw the whole year's work of, worth of work into the garbage. So the battle continued. Uh, and in recent years, there have been a number of uh, activists in our community who have taken up that struggle into the halls of the state legislature and in our community, among those groups, leaders of a beautiful struggle. Uh, who's been at the heart of that. Uh, and once again, joining us in studio along with Doug Colbert is Lawrence Grand Prix, who is Director of Research at Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle. Lawrence, good to see you again, man. Welcome. Thank you for having me. And you all can join us out here at 410-319-8888. You can write to us here by email at talk.signershow.org, as I said, or you can tweet us at Mark Steiner, but do join us. Good to have you both in-house. So, and we talked to Brian Frosch, we talked to Brian Frosch about this not long ago, one-on-one, uh, -on -one. Um, and uh, he has become, I think, we'll talk, we can talk about this another day, but a real crusading attorney general that we've not seen in Maryland in a while. I mean, Jill Kern was a great attorney general, but, but, but Brian Frosch is like this crusader out there trying to fight for people's rights, which is really kind of refreshing to see in our politics, I think. Um, but let's get back, let's get to the heart of this. Let, let's start, first of all, <clears throat> I want to do two things at the top of this hour. Uh, one is to, to talk about what this battle has meant over the last 20-some years around bail reform and then get into the heart of what this means and the heart of what Lawrence, you and all the others have been doing in the state legislature, where you think this takes us and what this next year might mean in terms of looking at this. And also to answer your questions out there at 410-319-8888 about what this means because it affects all of us, people in our families, people we care about. Um, and, and, and and kind of emptying our jails of people who sh should not be in there. So we want to hear your thoughts and questions at 410-319-8888. But, Doug, let's start with you, So if you, if you don't mind. Um, just, just a recap. From the very first, I, mean, I was thinking about the very first time you came on the air talking about bail reform on the show in the 1990s, um, and it was a long, lonesome struggle for a while. I mean, there were allies out there. Uh, but So talk a bit about that history and where we've come to. Well, first of all, Mark, let me thank you and, and the program itself for being able to bring this information to the public over the last 20 years. And we also have to be quite thankful to our high court, the Court of Appeals of Maryland, uh, for its rulings, for it having the courage uh, to embrace the new rules which survived a very serious challenge in the legislature. And, of course, our Attorney General, uh, whom you mentioned, uh, played a, a significant role mm -hmm. in bringing the issue to the Rules Committee. 
Um, having said that, Mark, if I'm if I'm thinking about what the last twenty years have looked like, uh, I have to begin from uh, recognizing that from our country's beginning, it has always been a struggle to ensure equal justice and an even playing field for people of color uh, and for poor and low-income people. Um, whether you're an accused person or a crime victim, our criminal justice system has always favored the rights of the wealthy, of the privileged, and that means predominantly the white population. So we still have serious issues of racism, of class uh, divide within our justice system. And in Maryland, I, I think you can see it so clearly uh, from the work that's been done over the past 20 years um, because it, it's when we look at um, the pretrial justice system, that's where we're looking at where money plays a significant role in who stays in jail and who gets freed. And it also had so much to do with who had a lawyer and who didn't. So in the very beginning, Mark, the picture in my mind is seeing 20 or 25 people from Baltimore City, um, almost all of whom were African-American, come shuffling into court in chains and shackles, appearing in a group in front of a single judge who told the group, anything you say will be used against you, so please be very careful what you say. Most people remain silent. Most of them received a money bail, and only those who could pay the bail bondsman's 10% non-refundable fee regained their liberty. Everyone else stayed in jail for at least 30 days, and on average, it was about 45 to 50 days. When we fast forward that picture to 2013, we see how our high court was able to do something that the legislature could not do, namely to guarantee that poor people would be represented by a lawyer. And the legislature, Mark, time and again protected the money interests of bail bondsmen and the insurance company. It's one of the many examples we have where the lobbyist influences and rules against the public interest. Um, so we filed a lawsuit in 2006 um, with the help of uh, the lawyers from the Venable Law Firm, a class action lawsuit. It took seven years, and in 2013, the Court of Appeals declared that every person who's accused of a crime, uh, every poor person was guaranteed legal representation. The, the last three or four years, the Court of Appeals has also played a significant role in reminding judges who are on the front line about what their job is in terms of applying and implementing the law of bail and pretrial release. And that's where we move into the last session of the legislature in this entire year and to recognize the work of the coalition that Lawrence is such an important part of and so many other people from community. I think that's what made the biggest difference this year. We had some of the big people in our state, like Attorney General Frosch, but it really took the work of community uh, to bring this issue to the public. So, Lawrence, I'm glad you're in the studio with us. I mean, when, when this whole, I mean, I was thinking about this this morning coming in, that when this struggle started in the 90s, I mean, you were probably still in high school or somewhere around there. <laughs> <laughs> no, it depends what part of the 90s. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. So, so talk a bit about um, the, what you all have been doing and, and what you've seen in your analysis of what, how this political process has worked. Well, the biggest thing I want to point out, um, our CEO was actually on another radio station yesterday um, having a conversation with um, a state lawmaker about this exact uh, issue. And the state lawmaker was kind of on the wrong side of the issue. He was supporting a bill produced by the bail bonds industry. And the frustration I have is that it seems as if folks are having two separate debates. Like, we need to define the terms of the debate because we're not having the real conversation. You can't have a debate over Iraq if you think Iraq is like a new Apple product or something like that. And so one of the things that we come to with the assumption of the debate is that kind of as Dr. Uh, Colbert was saying, the criminal justice system is a fundamentally racist, discriminatory system. Jail is terrible. And it is a product of a vicious mentality that views punishment over anything else. 
So when you have folks saying, well, I supported bail, but because I wanted to refine the system, we don't have a system that needs refining. We have a system that needs fundamental reconfiguring. Some would even say destruction. So that was the most frustrating thing, is that you have folks coming to the, the, this debate with the assumption that we can have some bail around, we can have some people be in jail only because they're poor and they're innocent and that's okay. I fundamentally don't think that's okay. And that's my starting point for this conversation. And I think any other starting point, I think, is morally bankrupt. And I understand that this is a complex issue and folks get confused, but when folks tell you, well, I was just concerned about some things with bail reform leading to unintended consequences, what they're not saying is that they are skirting the real conversation. We were trying to have a conversation beyond the court of appeals ruling, which I think is a good start. What do you mean we, by that? We were trying to have a conversation about redefining what pretrial services is. Not what it is now. We want to redefine what it can be. And that was a conversation we were trying to start with the bill that we were trying to advance through folks like Delegate Eric Barron, that was trying to create a framework where individual jurisdictions were able to have funding for pretrial services, to establish pretrial services, and to begin to bring community folks from those local jurisdictions into pretrial services, thus redefining the modality, the framework of what the criminal justice system is. But we couldn't have that conversation because folks like the senator who was on the call yesterday on the radio, Senator Muse, produced a bill that completely destroyed that conversation. So that's the biggest thing that I want to say is that we're having two different conversations that have two different assumptive logics. One has the assumptive logic of the political status quo and a tacit acceptance of a fundamentally problematic criminal justice system. And I get really frustrated when folks are saying, well, I was just trying to advance my definition of social justice. Because I think we have two fundamentally different definitions of what social justice is. And that's the conversation that we need to have. And that's not often what we have because people get so bogged down in these details. So this is going political. Go ahead, Doug, you're going to say I was just going to say, Mark, uh, picking up on Lawrence's uh, excellent analysis, that we have to always keep in mind of how money rules when people are thinking about justice. And that's where I fully share Lawrence's perspective, that when you're talking about justice, money should have nothing to do with it. So the reforms that we propose would provide greater safety for the community because it would mean that dangerous people would not be able to buy their way out of jail. It also meant the other side of that coin is it meant that poor people or low-income people wouldn't be denied their freedom and be incarcerated for a month or two on minor charges because they didn't have bail. But you always have to look at how profitable this bail and insurance company industry interest is in Annapolis and really throughout the country. The Abel Foundation did an excellent report about right. 15 years ago, in which they estimated the bail bondsmen collect close to $150 million a year in Maryland alone. Now, that number's come down because we don't have the same zero-tolerance policy that resulted in 105,000 people arrested in Baltimore in 2001-2002. But we still have profit driving this conversation. So the, for any senator, for any elected official to be saying that money bail is a good thing because it provides option eliminates the most important part of that conversation, which is who's profiting from this money bail system. So let me, there's, there's a lot here. Let me parse some of this through. And folks, do join us at 410-319-8888. Let, let me go to the, the, to the functional part of this for a moment and then come back to the things, the issues that both of you raised and I want to raise here given – the battle's still going on because it's going to have to go on. I mean, Lawrence raised pretrial services, which has not been funded and not been and not been built up to be able to match what bail reform might need, and and uh, said so that's a huge issue, and how you have to kind of change the entire nature of it, and we're not there yet. But what and 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 the split in the legislature, the Black Caucus was split in the state legislature over over this issue, uh, and so um, there's a lot here to wrestle with. But let me just start with this. So what does this mean? So July 1st, these new rules went into place, went, went, went into, went into uh, um, not place, went into uh, effect. Effect. Thank you for that. Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> I just came back from out of town. I'm a little groggy. Sorry. It went into effect. So talk, talk a bit about um, uh, 
what that effect means. Well, what, so what is different? What will happen now if somebody goes to court that didn't happen before? What's supposed to happen, Mark, is that the Court of Appeals has reminded the judges and the commissioners on the front line that people should not be getting a bail that they cannot afford. Okay, at the same token, so that means that taxpayers are paying lots of money to keep people in jail right. where ultimately the cases get dismissed. And what they're telling the judges to do is really the same thing that was in the law beforehand, but now it's coming from our highest court. And they're saying, if you are going to set a condition of freedom out of jail, mm-hmm. you should favor non-financial alternatives for people who don't have money. Because for people who don't have money, the least onerous condition is the one that doesn't require that you pay a bail bondsman a 10% non-refundable fee. So once you do that, then you're identifying the dangerous people, people who represent a clear danger, and you're saying to them that if the facts support the, the idea that you are a dangerous person if we give you your freedom, then those folks are going to stay in jail. The real challenge here, Mark, is whether the message from the highest court is going to be heard in the same spirit and intent by the judges and commissions on the front lines. So, I've, so, I've gone to okay. court, and I can tell you about my observations. So tell me here about that, because it seems to me that what, and let me see if I misunderstand this. I mean, one thing I read was that defense attorneys now can challenge a judge over bail, which they could not do before. No, they always could do that. They always sorry. So, so, right. so in that case, then, then I, what I was trying to read this morning about all this, about the law itself, about the what the, what the court said. So nothing's really changed. This is just the court advising the lower court that this is what you should do. But they really don't have the power to force them to do it. Um, so, I mean, what does this mean politically? What does this mean legally in terms of what? Happens on July, that happened on July 1st that's different than what happened on June the 30th. Okay, so... Lawrence Grand Prix. The idea, the way we were trying to explain it when we were advocating, not for the Court of Appeals ruling, we were advocating for legislation that would help codify this rule change right, and give it right, monetary support. Right. What we were saying is the idea is that Money bail should be the last option. People think about coming to a courtroom, and we've normalized bail in our society. If you think about it from the outside looking in, bail is a weird thing where you're saying, okay, you're accused of a crime, and the criteria by which I will let you back into society is not the uh, necessarily the severity of the crime, the fear of your escape. The primary condition is do you have the money to pay for your freedom as an innocent person? So what this is saying is that the judge needs to take into consideration that pr- giving people large bails when they are poor is essentially uh, pre-trial detention because they can't pay it. And if you're detaining people pre-trial simply essentially because they are poor, and again, these are folks who are merely accused of a crime, that's not constitutional. Right. That's not, that's, you just can't do that. But that's what has been happening in practice in Maryland. So the idea is there are lots of other options you can use besides money bail. You can say, check in with a pre-trial officer so I can be sure you haven't fled the state. It could be, well, you have a history of drug abuse, so I'm concerned that you're going to abuse drugs here, so I need you to report to uh, a a treatment facility. It could be, okay, you've been engaged in this uh, accused fight, this assault. You have to go to community mediation. There is a, we have a a problem with criminal justice. We have a failure of imagination. And the, the conditions laid out in the court of appeals ruling were not perfect. Some of them were things like uh, ankle bracelets, electron monitoring that we don't support. But the idea of using non-financial conditions for release for poor individuals is what this court rule is supposed to focus on. And the question is, are the judges continuing to fall victim to that failure of imagination? Are they continuing to fall victim to the fact that it's essentially an unfunded mandate? Or is this the beginning of a sea change in the way that poor people are going to get uh, justice in right. Maryland? And it, right. what we're, initially, what we're seeing it's a little bit of both. We have more poor folks who are being released without being forced to pay these bails they can't afford, which is good. We do have some data saying some more people may be detained who could otherwise have gotten bail. Now, what people aren't telling you, two things. First, when people say all these people are getting locked up now, a lot of those folks were getting really high bails before this court will get into effect. But they were essentially being detained anyway. They were just giving ridiculous bails. 
That's what people aren't telling you. People also aren't telling you in the data that a lot of the data that was collected was from the commissioners, and the commissioners were detaining people. But of course, if folks who have actually gone through the system know, you should go to a commissioner, in about 24 hours, you go before a judge. So the commissioner might detain you for 24 hours, but then you could get released by the judge. So just saying commissioners are detaining more people does not mean more people are being held because of this rule change. But that's the level of actually going into the data that people aren't doing. People are putting their ideology and their self-interest into the debate and saying the rule is a failure before it's even gone into effect. It's just gone into effect. So I, I want to get into that and because I think that's really important. We, uh, there are a lot of people calling in, so I want to get to their calls. Let's talk you something quick to say here so I can get to the phones. Well, it's just, Mark, that um, for the people who are judges, many of whom are people that I know, it is a very difficult job to make a, this decision without sufficient information. So lawyers, defense lawyers, and prosecutors have a very big role here. Judges don't always get it right. No one always gets it right. So defense lawyers have to challenge the judges who are not following the intent of the Rules Committee, the intent of the Court of Appeals. And at the same time, they we have to recognize that m more judges are applying it properly, in my opinion. Uh, but we have to be looking at specific practices where judges are keeping people in jail, either for nonviolent charges or for situations where there's not a clear indication that somebody's a dangerous person, um, and it's being overused to remand, to deny bail, where for many people, those folks would be in money bail is so, still an option mark it's not right, as though, no, no. So, so i'm saying yeah, yeah. So th i understand that so, so so i mean it it, it uh, and there are all these numbers other people are throwing up who oppose this it's the bail which, bond industry that's throwing out all those but, but i'm going to talk about those numbers though and what they mean uh, but folks let's go to the phones first at 410-319-8888 your thoughts and ideas and joe myers you're on the air welcome Good morning, Joe. Uh, hi. Good morning. Good morning, uh, Mark. Uh, you've been uh, wonderful. Sorry that you're going off the off the air soon. Thank you. Anyway, uh, let me mention a couple uh, of things. One is that I think we're overlooking uh, the power of the state's attorneys, uh, the state's attorney's office. That's an elective position, so so that we ought to be able to influence how the state's attorney. Uh, recommends the bail that's a very powerful uh, uh, force in the whole bail system it's true that the bail industry has a particular stake but the state's attorney has unchecked power in, in the role of setting bail in my opinion at least what I've seen having worked at, uh, at BC BIC for the last five years the other thing is that the resources of the defenders uh, 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 are almost nil uh, in comparison with the state's attorney's office. The other piece that I want to mention, which is simply a practical piece, is that a lot of the people, because they have their phone numbers on their cell phones, which are taken away, and because it costs a lot of money, except for that initial call, to try to get bail is we need case management services so people can attempt to make the bail. I'm wondering if you can comment on that. Uh, so should we have to go to a quick break here? Uh, and we'll comment on that as soon as we get back uh, with our guests. And uh, so stay with us at 410-319-8888. Kevin and Clarence, the next two callers up. And we'll be right back. Stay with us. Welcome back, folks. Good to have you with us here on The Mark Steiner Show. On our way back, the conversation an announcement to be made here, and then we'll come right back to answer the question that Joe raised um, during the course of his questioning. Then we'll go to Kevin and Clarence, the other two callers up. Uh, but uh, this, we want to make this announcement that um, this weekend, uh, July 16th on Sunday at the Mount Providence Chapel on 701 Gun Road, uh, there will be a funeral service for Sister Mary Alice. And those of you who know the Obelite Sisters, uh, that is the oldest African-American uh, 
nuns, a group of the order of nuns in the country. Uh, the woman who ran that and was the leader of that died at almost 100 years old, Sister Mary Alice. Uh, and to celebrate her life and what she did at St. Francis Academy and more, they, the Mass is being held Sunday, July 16th at Mount Providence Chapel, 701 Gun Road. Uh, this is woman, Sister Mary Alice uh, Chineworth, who is, was an amazing woman, uh, close to people like Camille Cosby, Solidar O'Brien, uh, and many other people uh, in our country, including the chief usher at the White House, who often sought her advice, uh, who will all be in attendance. So we're remembering, remembering her. Back to our conversation. Uh, we are here with Lawrence Grand Prix, Director of Research at Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle, and Doug Colbert, who is Professor of Law at the University of Maryland Carey School of Law talking about the changes that are taking place as of July 1st in bail reform and the continuing battle to end cash bail in the state of Maryland. We're looking forward to you here at 410-319-8888. But uh, who was going to answer the question that Joe raised? Go you, Doug. Yeah, sure. Well, Joe makes some very good points. Um, um, and, and the role of the prosecutor is extremely important. Prosecutors are supposed to be ministers of justice. And I am seeing an improvement in the prosecutor's presence at the bail hearing because for the one of the rare times I'm seeing prose- hearing prosecutors make recommendations that saying to the judge, um, we, we have no objection, Your Honor, or we're only asking for uh, some bail, meaning set a bail but don't make it too high so the person can't afford it. Public defenders are limited in their resources. Um, they are making better arguments on behalf of clients, in my opinion, but they need to challenge the decisions that are clearly erroneous. And I say that because it's going to be, in my view, it's going to be the Court of Appeals that's going to have to clarify for each and every judicial officer in our state what is the meaning of specific rules. Right now, you have a, a, a group of judges who are doing their best to apply and implement the new practice. And then you have another group of judges that's uh, digging in and seeing opportunities to deny people bail where I don't think the consensus would agree with that ultimate decision. But unless you challenge it, it's a final decision. So we have to get the Court of Appeals involved. So, do anything, Lawrence, before we get back to the phones? Yes. I actually wanted to talk briefly about something um, Doug raised while we were off the air. This idea of, um, let's say you have someone who has a minor assault. So, there are some folks who, this is an assault to charge. Maybe some people who have that could be a threat. The example is domestic violence, where you have someone who otherwise doesn't have a long rap sheet but says, I just, I'm going to attack her if I'm out. But some, most folks who have just like a buck or a slap don't deserve to be incarcerated. The question is, is it money that should be making that determination of who gets out? The answer is no, never. Is money an intelligent way to figure that out? There are things you can do, like have an objective risk assessment, where you actually have folks fill out information. Do you make an objective determination about who should be let out? You have folks from the community who are community practitioners who have specific knowledge who can help you with that risk assessment. And if judges are holding people that shouldn't be held, you should have money to study these judges to have them explain why they hold people. The question is, which system do we want to have? Do we want to have a pretrial justice system, which is pushing more towards being objective, more towards holding folks like judges accountable, or do we want to keep normalizing this extremely lucrative but fundamentally ridiculous notion that money is a useful mechanism to determine whether someone should get out or not? And I know that part of the struggle has been from the very beginning here is, is, has been the battle to actually end cash bail completely, as they've done in several other states in the United States. Um, I have very specific questions here that were raised in the Washington Post article this morning I want to bring up, but let's go to the phones first at 410-319-8888. Uh, Kevin, you're on the air. Welcome. Thanks for holding on. All right, Kevin, you there? Kevin? I think he is there. Kevin, you there? Yes, sir. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, and Mr. Stein, I commend you and uh, the show, and, and I'm going to say good morning to all three of you gentlemen. Good morning. The, good morning. More, the, more, the more that I listen, you're answering my questions, because at first I was confused about which movies y'all talking about, a cash bail, and I didn't know other states uh, did away with cash bail. Yes. So being that they did away with it, 
So if a person does get locked up, being that they poor or they well off, what do you do? That's what that was a way of generating money, but that's another subject. So if a person, if they did away with it, what do you do now? I mean, how does a person get out or own reconnaissance or, or they have to stay in jail? What what happens there? So you make a very important point, this Kevin. And um, the most important way to replace money bail is to replace a system where judges and commissioners are picking a number for bail which often doesn't have a doesn't correlate to either the individual and how much money the person has nor to the crime itself or failure to appear in the past when you have a risk assessment instrument you're providing it an objective recommendation now there's different kinds of risk assessment but when done properly you're going to get a risk assessment that's going to help the judge identify who is a safety risk who is going to return to court the judge doesn't have to accept risk assessment except in those states that have embraced it and there's now about 11 states that have done so they're finding it a very useful instrument to help the judge but it also means that the lawyers are able to provide more information uh, to the court. So a prosecutor might not like risk assessment on a particular recommendation, but what replaces money is the opportunity to argue that there should be some conditions placed on an individual. When you do risk assessment, you're also more likely to identify the relatively few people who need to be detained while they're waiting for trial. The Supreme Court has said that there are carefully limited exceptions to people regaining their liberty before trial because people are presumed innocent. So if we can find those relatively few, the point that Lawrence was making before about assault in the second degree, I mean, these are situations where people can get a push, a shove, a slap, and sometimes a punch, but there's no serious injury there. And what I'm seeing in court from from at least two of the four judges that I observed is that assault two cases are becoming remand cases. And that's a place where I feel judges are exceeding their power to detain uh, those individuals, unless, of course, they, they're giving a threat, I'm going to kill somebody, do not represent a clear danger to others. So the question, I think, well, let me go to the phone, Josh, I promise, and get to call, call us in here, because I think we really have to wrestle with some of the stats that have been showing failure to appear, what they mean, and the fact that there's been no bill passed to, re, to, to change the nature of bail reform and, be, and, and see that, uh, that we're also facing uh, a bail industry that has a huge amount of political power in, in the state of Maryland um, and no monies for uh, pretrial intervention or pretrial services at all which is supposed to be part of the package, and that never happened. So let's get to that moment, but let's go to the phones first. And Clarence, you're on the air. Welcome. Uh, Mr. Colbert. Uh, good morning to you, Mr. Colbert. Good um, morning, Clarence. Shouldn't that risk assessment that you just spoke of be in the form of a guideline? And those guidelines, that guideline should be the same guideline that the pretrial release should, should have. Uh, one page based on the history of that individual coming from both the state's attorney and the defense attorney, and the judge has that. Both both parties submit that to the judge, and the judge is a third person that can agree or disagree. He can either agree with both of them, or he can say whatever he, you know, he'd give his opinion, release the individual or, or um, remand the individual. But there still has to be a guideline based on the history with, um, as you said, with limitations and a guideline. And the risk assessment, Clarence, is something that's based upon the Arnold Foundation has done a great deal of work in this area. They use one and a half million cases as their base to develop a risk assessment that's able to pinpoint who are the people who have engaged in violent conduct recently who would represent a danger? Who are the people who have shown a lack of responsibility of coming to court? 
And that becomes the guideline. The lawyers are able to make their recommendations too. But for if I'm a judge on the bench and I have to do 25 cases in a particular session, that risk assessment tool is something that's going to be a big aid to me. I may not agree 100% of the time, but I will most of the time. So let me go back to the phones um, and get Megan on the line. Megan, you're on the air. Welcome. Yes, I don't know. You're, you're moving on. But look, um, I've been paying attention to the bail reform system. It started out, I guess, with our Homewood Friends meeting, observing at the bail hearings at um, Wabash Court. Um, but in December, the grandchild of a very old and dear friend of mine was arrested for secondary assault. He made about six appearances in court. He was in jail for four nights because his mother went away on a religious retreat for the weekend and there was no one to, you know, he couldn't get in touch with anybody else. So anyway, after that, he paid six appearances in court and was finally in front of a jury adjudicated not guilty. Thanks the Lord. So anyway, my other comment and question is, I know um, I read, and I can't remember the source now, that the amount of money that the bail industry pours into the coffers of our state legislators' campaigns is quite enormous. In fact, in 2014, I believe it was over $300,000, second only to the great state of Texas, which is, of course, many times larger than us. So they are very, very um, influential in our legislature. They almost had a bill passed that would have undermined the regulations or the, the new policy. Um, that, that the state right. attorney has brought in. So my question is, how can we monitor and see exactly where and to whom this money is flowing in our legislature? Because ultimately, I think, isn't it the legislature that's going to have to um, re- get rid of money bail? We've been hoping for the last 20, 20 years, but yeah. a lot of them is you start. Um, so that's a great point. There was a report done by an organization called Common Cause that says that the chair of the Senate State Senate Committee and the chair of the House Committee, so that would be Bobby Zirkin on the Senate side and Joe Valerio on the House side, were two and three nationwide in terms of individual politicians who have received money from the bail bonds industry over the past few years. Somewhere around $70,000 on a Zirkin's n- a number and I think around 50000 for Valerio. Not only that, but if you just Google search um, stats about bail, they're almost all done by the bail bonds industry. So all this so-called objective analysis done on bail, so much of it's funded by think tanks that are getting money from the bail bonds industry. So if you want to follow this, go to you can go to followthemoney.org, which is a site that we use that is great on transparency. It's not the easiest to use, but these people work for you, these lawmakers. And I also say these advocacy organizations are supposed to operate on your behalf. But we saw lawmakers and advocacy organizations caping in today's modern parlance for the bail bond industry in ways that I think some of them just were confused genuinely. And some of them just seem to have bought into this very simplistic narrative about what bail is. Again, I want to stress this again. If you've never been to jail, most of these folks haven't. Jail is bad. (laughs) Being a poor person who is innocent, not found guilty, and being forced to stay in jail only because you're poor is terrible. And ankle bracelets, not perfect. Other things, not perfect. But let's recenter the moral center of this conversation. If I'm a person who maybe I did have an incident where there's an assault too, I'm being forced to stay in jail only because I'm poor, that individual was continuously lost in this conversation. And I think that that's the normalization of the suffering of disproportionately black and brown people that we have to recognize is the core of why this conversation devolves into technical analysis and statistical analysis instead of the human toll of the criminal justice system that we're trying to get back to. So what's the response when people have said in this program, as the bail bondsmen have said on this program, they've been on here as well, um, that, look, we're the only way that you can ensure somebody's showing up to court. If they don't, if they don't have, or as Schellenberger said, the, uh, the, the state's attorney for Baltimore County, huh? You have to have skin in the game. You have to have skin in the game is what he said. You have to have skin in the game. And if you don't have skin in the game, it's not going to work. Though he also said that we have to watch this next year and see how this, how, how this works. And, it, it, you know, that, so it's, he, he played both ends there, which is good. I think that's an advancement. But the question is, what, what about that? What about how you manage a court system? If someone is arrested for assault or whatever they're arrested for, Mark, you've got to, so how does it become managed? 
people come back to court and in our city and in our state, the overwhelming number of people come back to court because, believe it or not, they're responsible and they take responsibility for their cases. You could easily get even more people to come back to court by simply setting up a phone system, a reminder for people who have phones, just to let them know the same way your doctor might call you and say, don't forget the appointment in two days. That's proven to be a very successful thing. This idea, and I find it quite offensive to suggest that people need skin in the game. If you were really concerned and wanted to use money, then you would deposit that money with the court and let people get the money back at the end of a case. That's an option for judges. You can put that same 10% in the courtroom and it gets returned. When you give it to the bondsman, it's like making a contribution to a powerful group that's not your favorite charity, by the way, but they have enormous power over individuals. They can enter your home without a warrant anytime they please. They can arrest you. If I don't like the way you're looking at me right now, Mr. Steiner, I could have you arrested if right. I'm a bondsman. So we have uh -huh. to move away from this dependency on an industry which really has its remnants back in the earliest days of slavery in this country where money bought people's liberty. Very briefly. So, go ahead, um, Lawrence. I think for some folks, um, it's not necessarily entirely nefarious. It's just they, they only know what they've seen. Like if I do a rain dance and it starts raining, I assume it's because of the rain dance I did. They've seen people have to pay bail, then they show up for trial. They assume it's because they paid bail. Maybe it's because they just realized they needed to freaking show up for trial. But in their mind, it's because of bail. So we have folks having a misreading of their life experience, sometimes 30, 40 years of life experience, where they just assume these people are lascivious and terrible and they only show up because of bail. No, most people show up because they understand the importance of showing up. And here's the proof. The Office of the Public Defender did a study about unsecured bond. What's unsecured bond? I call it back-end bail. Right? So that's front-end bail where you have to pay cash at the front-end to get your freedom. But there's also this unsecured bond which says if you don't show up for trial, we will make you pay money. And that'll, but you don't have to pay up front. It's only if you don't show up for trial. And this unsecured bond, or as I'm calling it back-end bail, was found to be just as effective as front-end bail, this cash bail, without feeding this ridiculously exploitative industry and forcing people to come out of their pocket and turn their rent money and children's food money over to the bail bondsman. But why, listeners, why have you not heard of unsecured bond? Why have you not heard of this option of what I'm calling back and bail? It's because we have a system that normalizes the exploitation of black folks. So when they say skin in the game, what they really mean is a pound of flesh, and they're giving it to the bail bondsman. So let's talk about what, what the alternatives are. I mean, so, so right now, you have a couple of states like Kentucky, and Colorado, and Colorado, and you've got states like Oregon, and you've got uh, Wisconsin. You've got, and you have many other big major cities throughout the country. So, so talk about what the alternatives are. I mean, one of the things I've been reading is that the, the battle was over um, pretrial services that do not exist, or they exist in to make it very difficult for people to get to pretrial services. They're not funded adequately. So, but what, 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 what are the alternatives here? I mean, to cash bail. Let's, let's be real specific. What are they? Well, Mark, first of all, pretrial services would save taxpayers enormous amount of money. It might cost 5 to $10 per person to supervise somebody, which means there's going to be some communication. There'll be a, a visit or two to the office. Um, but when you keep someone in jail, you're paying between 100 and $150 a day. So you're talking about 20 to 30 times more money to incarcerate someone. You know, when we had that other call from uh, Megan about her friend who spent four nights in jail, right. people can't even begin to imagine what it would be to spend a day in jail. Four nights in jail will change many people's lives. We are sending people in jail and keeping them there on average of about 35 days until they come back. So we have to find an alternative. So, but, but, but what I want to get to is because we've said that over and again, and I think most of us agree with what you're saying and what Lawrence was saying. Invest right. in pretrial services. So, so what, yeah, what are the alternatives? Okay. So what Let's are pretrial pre services? I actually don't like this term because pretrial services, as they've existed, are things like ankle bracelets that people don't like. I 
First of all, an example of a pretrial service that's being done in St. Mary's County is just simply have a few people get paid to text people to show up for trial. The goal of bail is to make people show up for trial. Their bail has no impact on if you get caught with another offense while you're out on bail. The only point of bail, supposedly, is to make people show up for trial. And again, these numbers showing up that says people don't show up to trial to get their money back that they pay for bail because they don't get the money back when they pay a bail bondsman. They show up for trial because they want to be responsible and they know that the disincentive of not showing up for trial is worse. Just some people forget. Some people move. Some people don't get reminders. So a very simple thing that is just a couple of people and some cell phones is having people paid to text people to remind them, here's where you show up for trial. Here's your court date. Here's your time. Show up. And the numbers say in St. Mary's County that that works. Now, briefly, I think we need to re-envision what pre-trial services can be. So people talk about a risk assessment. I'd like to see a needs assessment where you start to look at people's personality and their character and say, okay, here's the type of services that could, maybe you would recidivate. Maybe you would be an FTA risk if we didn't give you the right services. But on the back end, when we release people, some, some places do a needs assessment and figure out things that you can use in terms of services. Folks in the community that actually do things like mediation, do things like uh, health care. And that's the type of stuff that could go to the front end. So instead of people being in jail, being hardened and being more of a risk to community, they go to so, a new pretrial services entity run by people from the community that actually prevents them from entering a life of crime. Mm -hmm. That's justice. And so, we're not having that conversation. So Betty Robinson, just it's a question for you, Lawrence. Betty Robinson just sent an email in wanting to know what are the downsides of these risk assessment tools? There, oh, yeah. Are, are there assumptions they make? which would feed into the continuing injustices of bail reform, especially versus African-American defendants. Mm -hmm. um, and she, she, so that it's directed towards you, Lawrence, exactly. and then we can go over to So that. some of these risk assessments have what are called proxies in them. And the idea is that we want to get an idea of who these people are and all their risks to not show up for trial. But in the process of doing that and trying to be quote-unquote colorblind, there's some things they use to measure risk that may actually replicate bias. So there's things like, do you have stable housing? So one thing we know about African-American cultures is that we have an extended notion of community, family, and subjectivity. So stable housing for me may be my cousin, who is more my brother than my brother is. And that's actually stable housing. But the risk assessment, which comes from a Eurocentric perspective, says you can't pay your own rent or you don't live with your parents, therefore you don't have stable housing, therefore you're a threat not to show up for trial. And there are other examples, of course, where people are looking at things like your employment history. And we all know, especially African-American men, have a hard time gaining employment, not because they're a threat to do crime, just because of the nature of our new economy. So there are things in these risk assessments that are trying to be colorblind, but end up being culture blind, end up being context blind. So every time I talk about risk assessments, what I talk about is bringing in folks from community that have organic expertise to help uh, augment and add to what, what people are trying to do with these so-called objective risk assessments. So we have a more comprehensive and complex view of who these human beings actually are to figure out, again, not just their risk, but their needs. So I think that world where that becomes risk assessment is a new world. But again, we have this failure of imagination where the only thing we can think of is what they did in Kentucky and not what we need to do for Baltimore. And I, of course, I join uh, Lawrence's um, comments because saying risk assessment only begins the conversation. You really have to see what are the criteria being used there. And to have community involved at each and every stage is really the key to success for any pretrial program. You know, Mark, when, when I think of uh, pretrial services, I think back to Bobby Kennedy. I think back to the original Vera Institute, where the job of the pretrial counselor was to help people find jobs, help people get back to school, help mm -hmm. people get into a treatment program, give them the skills they need to be productive members. It was not a punitive thing. It was a way of identifying people who need the assistance of others from the community. That's the whole basis of the origins of pretrial services. And when done properly, and when funded properly, that's what your pretrial representatives will do in Maryland. So let's go back before we have to end, end the conversation here, um, before the hour, this first hour of the show uh, ends. So what is it that's different? Make sure we all really understand this. This happening on July, that happened on July the 1st, that changes the nature of what would happen if you or somebody you care about is arrested and they have to go before a judge for a bail hearing. Well, what's different is that the judges are being told by our highest court 
that there is a preference for pretrial release on personal recognizance, meaning you don't have to put up money bail, or on unsecured bond, and that judges are supposed to be looking at non-financial conditions first and foremost and saving money bail as a last resort. Now, if that if the judge does something else and in the opinion of the lawyers makes an incorrect decision, that's where the lawyers have to appeal that decision. The problem with appealing or taking it to another court is that it takes often two to three weeks to have a habeas hearing. Now, habeas should be within 24 hours. That's, you know, going back a long time, Mark, but we don't honor people's unlawful incarceration. So within the legal system, there have to be changes. So we're almost out of time. So, but so, so, while, so while we may have blunted, the, maybe the bail bonds industry was blunted in the state legislature from their bill, which have canceled all this, that means that people like you, Lawrence Grand Prix, and others, Karen York and the rest, and you, Doug Colbert, will be back in the halls lobbying for something a little stronger this coming legislative session. Yes, this essentially is an unfunded mandate. So the idea is that judges get a new operating system. They have their old operating system that puts cash bail at the top. Now they're supposed to put release on recognizance and non-financial conditions at the top. Now, some f- judges may not do the update, if you will, and they may still operate on the old operating system. So what we need is funding from Annapolis to help beef up pretrial and to hold judges accountable if they don't follow the new rules and give them people in community legitimate funding and opportunity to engage folks pretrial so they have a place to go that the community can have a sense of security and safety and that there is an infrastructure of institutions in that community that can keep them safe. So the thing is, I wish we had more time because we didn't get to what Judge Morrissey's letter was from the, the court and they're saying now that, that the failure to appear are up from last year at this time and, you, and that could be used as a reason to say this is not working. Well, they may be up, Mark, but relative to the rest of the country, we're actually doing quite well in people returning to court. We can do better by something as simple as just giving people reminders to return Again, to this court. is an unfunded mandate. So how about you funding as opposed to just saying, well, we don't have the infrastructure to achieve success right now. Of course we don't. You didn't fund it because the bail bondsman jacked our ability to have that conversation. Last thing I'll say is that if we have a 1%, 2% increase in FTAs, Maybe that's something as a society we can accept to prevent the violence of innocent people being detained pre-trial just because they're poor. And that's the conversation, again, we're not having, where so, we are willing to say, toss the individual aside because, of, oh, a 2% increase in FTAs. Look at Khalif Browder. Look at people who are dying in jail who are innocent or forced to take pleas. And that's the conversation we're not having. Lawrence Grand Prix is Director of Research for the Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle. Doug Colbert, Professor of Law at the University of Maine Carey School of Law. Good to have you both with us. Oh, it's a pleasure, Mark. Thank you. Before we go to break here, reminding the Mark Steiner Show is brought to you in part by MeQ, Baltimore's credit union, offering a full range of financial services. MeQ, Baltimore's credit union, has been helping its members and its community prosper for the last 80 years. When you invest in yourself, MeQ invests in you. More information at www.mecu.com or steinershow.org is MeQ, Baltimore Credit Union's banner. Take a short break. When we come back, uh, we will be hearing the voices of Christian Palestinians. Stay with us. <laughs> 